you guys doing? Good. Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, amazing worship today. Thank you guys. So incredible. Um, glad to be here. Last week I was in Jakarta. Yeah. I had no idea how far away that was. A 17-hour plane ride. That's the second longest one. I went to Dubai last year for the World Vision thing, and that was 19 hours, and that was... Whew. But this was um, equally difficult. Um, one thing I learned about Indonesia and Indonesian people is that they don't want you to go two hours without eating. <laughs> and Indonesia is this amazing place, right? It's like 17,000 islands, all these different, you know, tribes and people groups. And so you'll talk to somebody and they're like, have you had Indonesian food? And you're like, yeah, I think so. I've been eating since I got landed the plane, you know? And they're like, yeah, but did you have this? And you're like, I don't know what any of these names are. And they're like, nah, you didn't really have Indonesian food because it's not my kind of Indonesian food. And so um, we kind of ate our way through Jakarta uh, for a few days and got to meet some amazing people and some great work that's being done there. And so um, stay tuned for hopefully more connection and more growth for what God is doing through Crosswalk Church. And um, it, was, it was an incredible trip. Got back last Monday and I think I'm on the right time zone now. I'm not sure. But it's good to be back here with you. And Pastor John, thank you so much for um, preaching the final sermon in our series last week. Um, really appreciated that. And uh, that's, that series kind of, it blew us away how many people were needing to hear the church speak about mental health and um, mental wellness, wellness and that sort of thing. And so we'll probably be talking more about that in different ways over the next few years to keep it important. Next week we're starting, next week we're starting season two of our Uncomfortable series. And um, that was a fun series. I don't know if you remember that. We had a cellist who'd never played cello before. You remember that? And he, he took one for the team too, because he's a phenomenal musician. He's like, I don't play that instrument. We're like, it'll be fine. It's not fine. Um, but anyway, we, uh, so I'm looking forward to doing that. I'll be kicking it off next week. I'm really excited to be here um, for that and get it started. As you know, we're in the midst of a few things. Um, and so I just wanted to talk about the lift a, a little bit. We're about 300K, which is great. We've got two months as we're looking towards raising a million dollars for the upgrade of this campus and this digital infrastructure, the stuff that we do in this room. The vast majority of it goes to our sound system and, the like I said, the digital infrastructure to make what we do here happens and even more smoothly and better. Um, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but I do want to talk specifically to you who are online, if I can do that for just a moment, because there are many of you who catch this um, service and it's a real blessing to you. And you go to your other churches, which is great, and you come home and you're like eating tacos or something, and you're like, we should turn on Crosswalk. And you get an extra added blessing. So um, I'm wondering if this is a place where you're finding some community, whether it's on online or you swing through every once in a while, but that you find a blessing from the messages and from the worship that happens here, which you should because the worship is incredible and God is really just amazing. Um, I wonder if you consider giving as well. You can go to our website, crosswalkvillage.com, go to give, and then give to the lift if it's blessing you as well. I know it's not, maybe not your home church, um, but, but we have your heart because you're watching us, so we'd love, to, uh, we'd love you to engage in giving with that as well. And in that way, you can add to the mission of what we're doing, which is to love well. And just so you know, we gotta give a shout out to our worship team. We have one video of a song we did, Holy Forever, that moved into Holy, Holy, Holy. It just passed 1 million views on YouTube, which is incredible. 
Yeah, so um, so to the worship team, to Taylor and his team, to Kenny Miranda, who did all the mixing, just congratulations and thank you for representing so well. And I know they're working on another one, which is going to be very cool. So our mission, as you know, is to love well. Now, why is loving well so important? I know we talk about this a lot, but I thought I'd break it down before we get to the topic that we're talking about today. Um, it's pretty simple. Matthew 22 says this, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. First commandment, some of the commandments, um, full submission to love, right? It's the priority, it's the source, it's the focus, it's what we're supposed to do. And Jesus says, this is the first and greatest commandment, but this does not mean neglect of others. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I love how Jesus says this. Jesus says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally as important. He said, so this is the great one and there's nothing greater and the second one is just as good, right? Which is a little confusing, but it means that these things are on the same line, on the same level. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? And this is the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Now, I love that Jesus did this for a few reasons. One, it's simple, it's easy to remember. Second of all, we have a problem with Scripture. And you know what the problem with Scripture is? It's really long. You know this because you try and read the Bible through because we all have that feeling of like, I'm going to read it this year. I'm going to read the whole Bible through. And so you get all the lists and everything and what you're supposed to read and you get to Leviticus and you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Which I totally understand. Leviticus health laws are exhausting right? I love what Newsweek does. I get the Newsweek email every week. I get lots of, lots of different ones um, every day. But the Newsweek one comes and it has the articles, but on the top it has this. You know what this means? It means too long didn't read, right? I get emails from people and I'm like, no, nah, I need a TLDR on this because I am not going to read that email, right? Too long didn't read. Let me sum it up for you and then you can go read the article if you want. Right? This is what Jesus was doing with the whole of the scriptures. Too long didn't read. How about this? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Got it? Can you do it? I'm asking. Yes. All right. That's why we love well. Right? Today's a campus day. What that means is that we've got different people on all of our campuses preaching what is relevant specifically to their campuses. And we've all talked about the different things that we're talking about. And I think I'm taking on something that nobody else is taking on today. Um, But I thought I'd talk about what's going on in the Middle East today and how that relates to us as people of faith, as Christians, as end time people. That's kind of our faith tradition as well. And I'll just give you a little background. Um, You know this, but my father was an archaeologist. Um, From about the time I was about eight years old until college, we pretty much went to Israel every single summer. I spent 12, 14 weeks in Israel living there um, right next to a kibbutz. We lived um, at, it was actually kind of a resort. I'm not going to lie. It was pretty nice um, to do archaeology. Most people who do archaeology like live in a tent, right? Um, we did not. We lived in little bungalows right by the Mediterranean Ocean. It was pretty nice. Um, but but still, I'm in Israel. We're living there. Um, every, every weekend, we would go into Jerusalem, and we'd be at the Western Wall on Friday night, and then we would go to the Mosque of Omar that is um, on the Temple Mount during the weekend at some point to check it out. So um, I'm relatively familiar with the region, and there's a few things that we need to know when we think about this region. First, it's not very big. We look at maps, and we have a tendency to think, oh, that's, that's 
pretty big over there. It's not, right? Chances are, if you were in Israel right now, some part of the conflict would be happening to you or close to you, and I mean close to you like in Fontana, right? Not that far away. It's just not that big an area. When we used to take a tour, um, we used to have an Israeli colonel who was our tour guide. And we'd go through the city of Jerusalem and he'd be like, yeah, we were right there in that building shooting at Syria who was right there in that building. And you're like, are you kidding? Because when Israel first got, and Israel first received the land after World War II, it was just this tiny little strip. And um, not till the Six Days War were they able to push it out to what we see now. Um, but I had friends who were Israelis. I had friends who were Palestinians. And what I learned over those years is that this is a really complicated place, right? The history of this region is biblical, as we know, but it's also medieval. We've got Crusades. You've got Ottoman Turks. You've got Christians. You've got Jews. You've got Muslims. You've got Orthodox Christians. Um, just a perfect example of this is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. When you go there, which is the place where they think probably Jesus, probably Golgotha probably was. There's the garden tomb that's outside the city, which is beautiful and looks like you'd want it to look. But the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is probably a little more traditionally correct. And you go, and every time you go to a new room, it's a different sect that runs the room, right? From Ethiopian Coptics to, um, to, uh, to Egyptian Coptic church. I mean, it just goes on and on, all these Orthodox churches. It's a, it's a crazy jambalaya of different worldviews, ideas, and faith traditions, right? It's a really complicated place. Now, I want you to be clear. I want you, and I'm sure you know this, but I'm no expert in geopolitics. I'm not experts on, on how governments should run. I don't, that's not my world, right? What I know is this, from a biblical perspective, this region matters to us and to so many more. One of the reasons why it matters to us and it is so important to us is not just that that's where Jesus was and that's where the biblical history happened, but because we have a tendency to be a faith tradition that looks forward, and we have a tendency to always be looking forward to Armageddon, right? And I'm already hearing preachers who are already saying, here it comes, right? They're already saying, this is a culmination of prophecy, and we're here. And, and it does feel like we are watching something biblical happen, and there's fear that there's going to be a lot more players that are sucked into this conflict. And, um, and I don't know where you fall. That's, uh, that's not my point here today. Um, we'll, we'll get to more of that later. But we have a tendency, when we think about Armageddon, when we think about the end of time, we think about this area and this place in general. In the Bible, Armageddon refers to the climactic future battle between God and the forces of evil, as recorded in the book of Revelation. The word ultimately comes from the Hebrew word Har-Mageddon, which means Mount Megiddo, right? Which is the predicted battle location. Now, if you've been to Megiddo, um, you know there's Tel Megiddo, so it's a, a city that was built a bit on a hill, and now it's obviously grown over that. But there's the plain of Megiddo out there, and then um, there's kind of the mound or hill of Megiddo. And we see this word show up in Scripture once in Revelation 16. So I'm going to read the I'm going to read a bunch from Revelation today. You guys ready for that? Because we don't always do that here. So settle in. Um, I'm not going to give a lot of commentary, but I'll read it to you. It says this, then the sixth angel poured out the bowl 
on the great Euphrates River and it dried up so that the kings of the east could march their armies towards the west without hindrance. And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs leap from the mouths of the, dra- from the, mouths of the dragon, the beast and the false prophet, right? By the way, our faith tradition has put things on every one of these characters, right? And you know that, you just don't know which one it is for what, right? You're like, I'm pretty sure this one is supposed to be these guys. We've, we spent a lot of time doing that. I'm not doing that today. But there's a lot of players that are happening. There's frogs, there's beasts, there's dragons, there's false prophets. They are demonic spirits who work miracles and go out to all the rules of the world to gather them for battle against the Lord on that great judgment day of the God Almighty. Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready so that they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. And the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. Only place where this shows up. Could mean mountain, probably not a mountain. Could mean hill. Right? So, the end of the world is supposed to take place in this region. Right? But there is more. In Revelation 19, 11 through 20, which I will read, a final battle occurs at Christ's second coming as the conquering Christ defeats the forces of the Antichrist. We take this to be a description of the battle of Armageddon that was mentioned in Revelation 16. So um, let's just acknowledge something. Reading apocalyptic literature is a bit frightening, am I right? Like, like, and by the way, every generation that reads Revelation, every generation that reads Revelation is like, it's now. It's absolutely happening now. And they look around and they look around at what we call the signs of the times. And we go, oh, this is happening. So, so to do that right now is 100% reasonable and something that you probably do, right? Every generation has done it. I think about my grandmother who was born in 1910. By the time she was 60, she'd experienced World War I as a baby, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. That's by the time she's 60. So when she read this, what do you think she said? Plus the establishment of the state of Israel on all the wars that they, they dealt with, like, by the time she was 60, I'm sure she's looking at this stuff going, yep, it's now. Our early church parents did that and so forth every generation since. But let me read Revelation 9, 11 through 20. Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. A name that was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his title was the word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest pure white linen followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them all with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, at his thigh, was written his title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures, flying high in the sky, come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw a beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. 
and the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and worshiped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet, false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. <sighs> Sounds like an angry, though justified, God of wrath. By the way, I've heard some descriptions of Jesus Christ coming back that sound a lot like this, but in modern terms, Jesus coming back with a robe drenched in blood with an AK-47 shooting down all their enemies. Well, it's funny and it's not because there are certainly Christian sects within North America that believe that's how Jesus comes back, all right? So does this have anything to do with what is happening today in our region? Listen, I've already listened to sermons and lectures tying all of this together. Apocalyptic rhetoric that will curl your toes. Warnings of the signs of the end. Fulfillment of prophecy by connecting certain players to certain biblical roles. It's out there. Some are kind of fun, not going to lie. Some are a little scary. Some are outright crazy. And some sound almost right. And you know that we come from a faith tradition that has a proclivity to look for the end. Because for some reason, we've thought if we can figure it out and we know exactly what's going to happen, first of all, we'll know which hill to run to when, right? And we'll be okay. We can face the coming trials as long as we know what they are. Oh, and by the way, all of this writing, all of it, it is definitely, definitely about us. In the history of the world, somehow, it all hinges on our little tribe of believers. Is there anything wrong with this? Anything wrong with the way we think, right? Starting in 1844, we started looking around at signs of the times. In fact, our full premise of even becoming a church was that Jesus is coming soon and all this stuff is unfolding prophetically. Every generation has seen it unfold prophetically. And by the way, every generation has had to reach its own end. So to think apocalyptically about your life and your experience here on earth is 100% appropriate. But we need to be careful that A, we don't assign roles to nations or people that, that God hasn't. And B, we need to be we need, a, we need a hermeneutic that doesn't just put us into panic all the time. Now, this is what I'd like to say about what's going on right now. It's horrible. There's nothing good about it. What Hamas did, not good, right? Hamas not being the Palestinian people, but deeply embedded. What Israel had to suffer and what Israel has visited, not good. Loss of life is never what God wants and never what we should want. I, I, I find myself cringing a bit as people are posting on one side or the other because they are oversimplifying something that is deeply complicated for thousands of years. And so I'm always fascinated when some 17-year-old person from somewhere in the United States who has never suffered through this 
goes, this is the way it should be. And you're like, well, I'm glad you're passionate. But this is really complicated. And I don't think that we sort out our feelings about this by just looking at the end of time. I think a hermeneutic that might do us a little better is maybe if we looked backward rather than forward. And thinking of today's conflict and its complexity, I would suggest that perhaps before we look forward to the end of time, we look back and remember some things that were said at the beginning. So what was said at the beginning of all of this? I turn to Genesis chapter 1. So we'll go way back to the beginning. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, the wild animals on earth, and the small animals who scurry along the ground. God said, I would like to make a species that resembles us, that holds our image, that is unique. And what I find fascinating, he didn't say what we should do is we should create a species and then divide them up as quickly as we can. He didn't say that. He said, let us make man, humanity, anthropos, right? Humanity, all of humankind. Let's make human beings in our image so that when they see each other, they see us. They see who we are. We see what love is. We see what hope is. We see what grace and mercy and compassion is when they look in each other's eyes. You know what this means? It means that we all carry the image of God. It means that we are all image bearers. Every single one of us Everyone that you agree with, everyone that you love, everyone that you know you're attracted to, every single person that you see holds the image of God. And it also means that all the other people, the other people that you don't know, the other people that you may not like, that seem to sit on the other side of whatever political or ideological conflict that might be happening in the world, those are people that are full of the image of God as well. In other words, the construct of other, someone being other than us, is anathema to God and it should be anathema to us as well. It means that God doesn't know an other. God only knows image bearers. In fact, he blesses a particular group of people. And we see this happen in Matthew 5. As Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, He, he, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, and I'll get there in just a second. It's a complicated conflict in a complicated world. Loss of life is never what God wants and never what we should want. It feels as if things are out of control, and it feels like we're pummeling towards something that may be even more out of control. And truly, we might be. The fear is that other nations get sucked into this particular conflict and it expands and it broadens. In moments like this, I'm reminded of the words of A.W. Tozer in his book, A Man of God. 
He says, while it looks like things are out of control, behind the scenes, there's a God who hasn't surrendered his authority. And I wonder what God wants for us as people way separated from this conflict. And, and let me just admit this. I don't live there. It's easy for me to talk about the importance of the image of God and every single person that's involved in this conflict from a really safe place here in Redlands, California. I'll acknowledge that. I'll acknowledge that I'm not dealing with intimate loss of life due to this and the horrendous actions of certain people and certain nations. I'll acknowledge that. So I get to speak to the aspirational parts of humanity today because I'm not running from a bomb that's falling down on my home. But I want to give us, I want to give us a hermeneutic in which to view not only what's happening there, because that's not the only conflict in the world, first of all. And second of all, it's not the only conflict that will happen in the world. But Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, he blesses lots of different things, but one of the things that he says is, blessed are those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. So, our response as Christians to this particular conflict, which is horrendous, and really every conflict needs to be that we sue for peace and we pray for peace, that we are peacemakers. Because as we're peacemakers, we again show the image of God to people and receive the image of God from people. And Jesus didn't say on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who figured out the end of time, for they'll know exactly when to run. He didn't say, blessed are those who spend all their time figuring out the, the intricacies of prophecy, so you'll know where to pin what biblical character on what nation or, or person that's happening right now. He didn't say that. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they're my children. I don't know your politics. I don't need to know. I think a place that it's safe to say we can all land is that we recognize the image of God in every single person. And we work in our spheres of influence to create peace and not division, love and not pain, joy and not fear, and in a way, by us doing that right here, right now, we actually can affect the tenor of the world. Because when a situation like this happens and we're way over here, it does sometimes feel like there's nothing that we can do. And I mean, I think you should give to organizations that are working towards humanitarian relief. I think you should, you know, I, I think we should do that and work in those ways too. But but maybe the most important thing you can do is love and love so well in your area, with your people, your family, your friends, the people that you work and pray and play with, 
That, that overwhelming sense of love that we have for God and that God has for us overflows to the people around us. And the world becomes just a little bit better. You've heard me say this a million times. Ministry happens in millimeters, not miles. Well, so does love. Our commitment to loving and loving well, letting that overflow of love affect the person next to us and infect the person next to us so they might pass along that virus of love that God has given us. Maybe that's the way we make a real change in the world. The vast majority of us are not going to get on a plane and fly over and do humanitarian work. We're not going to go and enlist in somebody's arm. We're not going to do that. But what you can do today is to commit to a better world by recognizing the image of God in all of those around you and making sure you will be the best expression of God. And it's also... You recognizing and believing that God still reigns above all of it. Even in a world that feels ridden with conflict, pain, and suffering. We believe that God is still in control. And we believe that God is still good in the midst of that. So what do we do today? Today, we pray for peace, which I think is a political reality of a ceasefire and humanitarian aid rushing in to every area and healing that will take generations. So that's what we'll do today. And then my admonition to you is that you walk out with that sense of peace and give it to everyone that you meet. So let's bow our heads today. Heavenly Father, we believe that you reign. We believe that your sovereignty is still a real thing in this world. And in this world that seems so chaotic and so conflicted, we ask that your presence be the peace that people need. Lord, right, we'll ask for the miraculous. Just come and solve it. That's better. Not one more loss of life, not one more bit of pain, not one more moment of suffering. We want that. But if you wait then we're gonna to have to take responsibility for the peace that we see in the world. And that doesn't start by fixing everything. It starts by affixing our heart to you and letting that overflow of love that comes directly to us, to everyone, so that the world becomes a little better, a little bit at a time. And it aggregates into a tsunami of love that overwhelms the world. Lord, if that's supposed to start here today, let it take root in the good soil of our hearts so that it may grow and bear fruit in everything in our lives. Lord, we pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus, the God who still reigns. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.